the women behind the prophecies, Ursula Joost and her printer, Marguerite Preuss. At first glance, prophetische Gesicht und Offenbarung der göttlichen Wirkung zu dieser letzten Zeit, so prophetic visions and revelations of God's work in these last days, seems to have little to do with female authorship or agency. The frontispiece bears the name of a man, Melchior Hoffmann, and the text was printed in Strasbourg by Balthasar Beck. Yet it is arguably the women behind the text who made these visions public while themselves remaining nearly invisible, who played the most significant roles in its production. On the innate title page, and indeed throughout the text, the author remains unnamed, but crucially is referred to as a Gottes Liebhaberin, that is, a female lover of God. When viewed in the context of the Radical Reformation and Anabaptist groups in Strasbourg around 1530, the few clues that the text does provide have been sufficient for scholars to concur that the prophecies were experienced and in some way recorded by Ursula Joost between 1524 and 1530. Just as there is no pretense about the author's gender, in many ways the identity of the other female behind the text is also only thinly veiled. In 1530, Balthasar Beck's printing operation was not a lone enterprise. The text came from the Prus Beck print shop, Marguerite Prus being his wife and the proprietor of the business until she took Beck as her third husband. To explore the prophecies in more detail and gain glimpses of Ursula and Margareta, this discussion will explore the key elements referred to in the title. Firstly, prophetische Gesicht und Offenbarung der göttlichen Wirkung, focusing on the role of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, eine Gottes Liebhaberin, Ursula as a female prophet and writer. Then, zu dieser letzten Zeit, eschatology as context and content for the visions. And finally, Büchlein, little book, focusing on the two people responsible for turning the visions into a little book, Prus and Hoffmann. The very premise of this text is unusual, presenting as it does the visions of a female prophet, facilitated by a female printer, albeit under the influence of Hoffmann and the women's husbands. However, it is important to be mindful that prophetic and mystical writings are traditionally presented as the result of divine authorship, facilitated through a weak human instrument. Far from being a limiting factor, their weakness made women uniquely privileged in this respect. Furthermore, Anabaptism effectively presented a parallel order created by God's Spirit, where women could see visions, prophesy, teach, and publish. Part 1. Prophetisch Gesicht und Offenbarung der göttlichen Wirkung What then was this parallel order created by the Spirit? In what ways were Ursula's experiences aligned with biblical tradition? To what extent can she be considered an Anabaptist prophet? These are just some of the questions with which a reader of Ursula's text must grapple in order to understand not just how the work of the Holy Spirit is presented, but why this is the case, and indeed why this matters. In introducing Ursula's own foreword, Hoffmann emphasizes the significance of her visions. Die ihr aus wahrem Gottesgeist umhört, gedeut und angezeigt sind, welchen Gottesgeist sie nach ihrer Einfalt, Einschein und Klarheit des Herrn tun nennen. So, which came to her through God's Spirit and were um, explained to her as well. Given the atmosphere of religious debate during the early Reformation, it is unsurprising that visions came under scrutiny and provoked divergent responses from prominent figures. Luther advocated that a person should come to faith sola scriptura, with dark passages being interpreted through other scripture without recourse to visions or encounters with the Spirit. Furthermore, between the end of December 1524 and the end of January 1525, he published a two-volume text entitled Wider die himmlischen Propheten von den Bildern und Sakrament. Here he condemned both papists and schwärmer, or radicals. 
Before looking more closely at Ursula's first visions, it is important to briefly consider the role of the Holy Spirit in Anabaptism. Snyder asserts, appealing to the Holy Spirit as the central interpretive agent means that a spirit-filled, illiterate or semi-literate woman or man would be a truer exegete of scripture than would a learned professor lacking the spirit. This spiritual and egalitarian approach to the scripture, which emerged in Luther and Swingley's own movements, opened the door to the participation of women and undereducated commoners in radical and Anabaptist reform. This seems a useful starting point, but with two important caveats. Firstly, prophesying was nonetheless not a completely normal activity for those affiliated with the Radical Reformation. Secondly, it remains unclear how much women benefited from Anabaptism and whether their improved social status filtered through spiritual status filtered through to their societal position. Finally, the form of the text, structured as 77 separate visions, seems to further emphasise the work of the Holy Spirit, because the number seven is linked to spiritual perfection, and in Hebrew, the word seven comes from a root meaning to be full or satisfied. Although the scholars point to the use of the number seven throughout scripture, it comes up in particular in the book of Revelation, where we see, for example, seven churches, seven stars, seven trumpets, seven spirits before the throne of God. And these links to Revelation come up particularly strongly in Ursula's text. Part two, Anagotis Liebhaberin. The very short entry on Ursula in the global Anabaptist Mennonite encyclopedia online seems almost dismissive. It states, Ursula, the wife of Leonhard Jost at Strasbourg, a prophetess and like her husband, devoted follower of Melchior Hoffmann, who was greatly influenced by her and ranked her prophecies with those of Isaiah and Jeremiah. However, while the designation wife of X may offend the sensibilities of a modern audience, the text itself gives strong grounds for viewing Ursula in the context of this marital relationship. In her foreword, she states that following her husband's release from prison, had er und ich samtlich Gott den allmächtigen barmherzigen Vater mit ernstem Fleiß gebeten, dass er mich auf Wolf sehen lassen, seine Hand getat wurde. So they together prayed with real um, sort of uh, strength to God that they would show her wonders to his wonders to her, um, implying also that her husband had already experienced visions. The couple make an even more specific request at the start of the fourth vision. Und haben ich und mein Hauswirt Gott den barmherzigen Vater mit ernstem Fleiß gebeten, dass er uns wollt anzeigen, sein göttlich gerecht, seinen Willen und auch seinen Zorn. So here she particularly wants to see God's judgment, his will, and also his wrath. To compound the unusual nature of Ursula's position, she reveals here that she was not simply a recipient of visions, but instigated them by actively requesting that God grant her the gift of prophesying. So this means that her visions were not unsolicited, unwanted, or involuntary, and this then sets her apart from, for example, medieval women mystics, who generally stated that they had involuntarily received uh, visions from God. And it's also notable that her husband requested these visions for her, in this way. From the introductory quote, one can also infer that Leonhard had already experienced visions, and indeed Hoffman published a collection of these, now lost unfortunately, in 1530, actually some months after Ursula's text was printed. The te Ursula's text is a somewhat erratic mix of visions, varying from, for example, the highly cryptic to the clearly Christological, some presented in great detail, and others merely recorded in a few lines and given no interpretation. In some instances, Ursula simply asks the meaning of the vision, but in others, the interaction is more complex. 
For example, having witnessed a particularly distressing scene, including Wasser, Feuer, Schwebel and Bech raining down, she cries out, Ach, Allmächtiger Gott, was ist das? So, Almighty God, what is this? And is told that it relates to God's wrath and judgment. In a later vision, it seems that her request will go unanswered. So she says, Da habe ich gefragt, was das bedeutet, und hat mich sehr verwundert, war da aber kein Antwort. She was very surprised to not receive an answer on this occasion. But in fact, three days later, the spirit then asks her the question, Weißt du, was die starke Hand und die große Rüten bedeuten ist? Do you know what this strong hand and this sort of um, uh, instrument of wrath, as it were, is meaning in this case? The rod, and then this is explained to her. Ursula twice refers to her role as a prophet, requesting an explanation so that she can in turn share this with others. This indicates that even while she was having the vision, she was conscious of the need to proclaim them to others. It thus seems likely that Hoffman's presence in Strasbourg at the end of the 1520s provided her with a long-awaited opportunity to make her visions public, rather than that she had previously viewed the visions as firmly private. What then of Ursula's actual experiences of the divine? In her first vision, Ursula is so dazzled by the brightness of the glory of the Lord, dass ich vor Klarheit nicht hab die Figur erkennen mögen in dem Schein des Herr. So she couldn't actually make out what this thing was that she was seeing. Despite this, the Spirit clearly marks her out as being chosen by God. Danach ist derselbe Glanz des Herren über mir zu einem schönen Kranz worden. So actually some sort of, sort of wreath appeared to mark her out in this way. By contrast, in her second vision, she sees ein Schein eines Lichtes, so it's a glowing light while in bed, but does not describe this to the spirit. Instead, ich besorge ich es wäre ein Gespenst eines Bedrücknis oder eines Geists und war deshalb ein großer Fürcht und Schrecken. So she was greatly fearful because in fact she thought there was some sort of ghost or actually an evil spirit present. In the third vision, Ursula sees the glory of the Lord in the form of a cloud which fills the room followed by an indescribably bright, glowing lattice from which stars as bright as burning lights appear. And I'll just paraphrase the German. So she's uh, seeing this lattice, and in the middle of this, there is a form of God the Father himself. Um, he has spread out his right hand, and in his left hand, she sees a shape of a ball. And the spirit then speaks to her and says, when I take my hand away, then all of you that are on the whole earth will be as nothing. So basically, I have control over all of your existence. This representation of God's power over humanity and the consequences of his wrath highlights that there is a strong apocalyptic element to Ursula's visions from the very start. Furthermore, this is an incredibly powerful depiction because the cloud of the divine presence is a recurrent image in the Bible. Ursula's vision closely resembles Exodus 40, 34 to 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It would be easy to assume that prophetic visions include only visual elements such as these. However, Ursula often records multi-sensory experiences. On a few occasions, the spirit takes control of the body. For example, one time she feels her body being physically shaken, Another time, uh, she tries to take her eyes away from the glowing light, but in fact her face is drawn back towards it. 
And in Vision 28, she's woken by what sounds like a raging fire, while later on, the colossal noise mirrors biblical references to the Day of Judgment. Which brings us on to the third part, Sujiza Ledston's site. So the overall title of the text, Prophetische Gesicht und Offenbarung der göttlichen Wirkung, Sujiza Ledston's site, indicates that there is a pervasive uh, apocalyptic emphasis to this text. And it alludes to the off-sighted passage, Joel 2, 28-29, and afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Ursula, Hoffmann, and indeed many of their contemporaries not only took an apocalyptic view of the world, but believed they were living in those days when the end was imminent. Looking at the title page of the text, the upper half features Christ and the prophets, while the lower half depicts an emperor bowing to the whore of Babylon who was riding on a seven-handed dragon. This is clearly an allusion to Revelation 17, which is highly apocalyptic. Furthermore, this image would have likely reminded readers of Luther's September Testament, so his one of his translations of the Bible from 1522, which included 21 full-page woodcuts depicting scenes from Revelation. The passage from Joel is, however, even more significant in this context because of what it says about women. Namely, it both legitimizes prophetic visions by women and indicates that such visions foreshadow God's impending judgment. In his afterword, Hoffman says, Nun hat dieser Liebhaberin auch ein Gab des Geistes, so she has a gift of the Spirit, Und ein öffentliches Prophetenamt. So she has the office of prophesying. And he goes on to state with a similar air of conviction, Christus wird erstaan im Kurzum. Christ will come again in a short time. Ursula tends to state when each vision occurred, giving either an actual date or religious festival, or referring to the time interval since her last vision. This gives the text the feel of a historical record and seems to make it more credible. Furthermore, it is possible to identify a broad correlation between contemporary events and both the frequency and the intensity of her visions. In total, there are 77 visions, and of these, 58 occurred during the Peasants' War, 1525, a period of major upheaval, characterized by levels of brutality and bloodshed that seemed clear portents of God's wrath. By contrast, for the following three years of peace, there is only one recorded vision, while their final 18 visions are from 1529, when extreme hunger and persecution brought new suffering. As will become evident, it is not only the timing of the visions which link to contemporary events, but also their content. The visions themselves fluctuate between extremes, with complete hopelessness followed by resoundingly hopeful experiences, sometimes even within a single vision. Scenes of, for example, massacre, torture, and God's judgment alternate with depictions of a beautiful man, dazzling brightness, or ascension to heaven. At times, the visions reflect contemporary critique and attack bishops, the Pope, and the Turks. Many are quite shocking and depict, for example, evil spirits, streams of blood stretching out across the sky, or heaps of dead bodies. The list could go on. Such is the level of doom and devastation. It would, however, be misleading to claim that the visions are solely about death and destruction. The negative elements are linked to resoundingly positive depictions of God's mercy and the heavenly rewards lavished on his chosen people. Some images closely reflect Christian doctrine and recur across the visions, for example a crucifix or people ascending to heaven. In some visions there is a scene initially 
showing tyranny or terrible destruction. And then God steps in to save the true believers. Given that contemporary society had been seized with fear at the prospect of a great flood prophesied for 1524 or 1525, vision 19 is very interesting. Ursula sees the apocalyptic element here first. Das von Himmel herab fielen Wasserguss, the water was falling from heaven, gleich den Wolkenbrüchen, as if the clouds were bursting, und ich sah, dass da das Erdrich voller Wassers war. The whole earth became full of water. Then she notices people in the water, seemingly about to drown en masse, but at this point the tone changes to one of redemption. Da sah ich ein Hand aus den Wolken, daran hing ein Kränzlein, a hand came out of the clouds with a small wreath hanging from it, und alle, die so in Wasserwellen in Por schwimmen und führen, denen streckt sich die obgemeldte Hand da und satzt ihn auf das Kränzlein und führt sie hinauf gegen Himmel. So all those who swam upwards towards the hand were in fact rescued from it, by it and taken up towards the heaven. These dichotomies between positive and negative images are particularly evident in the final vision, where the biblical motif of the narrow and wide paths, Matthew 7, 13 to 14, is depicted. Ursula describes seeing a narrow path and beside it two men wearing green wreaths on their heads. They dig a ditch in front of the narrow path. When a young man appears and wants to follow this path, they attempt to push him into the ditch. He eventually manages to get through and continue on his way. The fate of the two men is decidedly less positive. So the two men stand by the side of this ditch and she notices that the green wreaths on their heads suddenly become incredibly dry as if they had been burnt by a fire and completely, um, yeah, completely damaged through that. This closing image is both an exhortation to each individual to consider their own status before God and follow the example of the young man and also a warning that those who try to turn others from the path of righteousness will not go unpunished. Indeed, these are arguably the messages conveyed by all of the visions. As opaque as some of the individual depictions may be, when taken as a set of 77 visions, there seems little doubt that the apocalyptic tone can only be properly understood in conjunction with allusions to the afterlife. Part 4, the Buchlein, the little book. Having considered the role of the Holy Spirit, Ursula as a prophet, and the nature of the visions, it is finally important to think about the role of the two people responsible for turning the visions into a little book. It was printed at a time when the printing industry was experiencing what the German historian Franz Lau has called Wildbuchs, wildfire growth, as in a jungle or an abandoned garden. Furthermore, as an imperial free city which was strongly independent and functioned as a political and religious crossroads, Strasbourg was an important city for the production and the dissemination of radical texts. The Prusbeck print shop certainly played its part. According to Snyder, from 1529 to the end of 1530, it published six radical texts written or edited by Popper, which was definitely a risky enterprise for the printers, just as for the writers. In many ways, Marguerite de Proust was just as exceptional as the woman whose work she printed. Having inherited the family business from her father, she continued to run and indeed expand it throughout her life. But Marguerite was not able to do this alone. She needed a husband. In fact, Marguerite was married three times, and in each instance, following the death of the previous husband, ownership of the business transferred to her new spouse in accordance with guild rules. These men were already involved in the printing industry, but marrying Proust was arguably as beneficial to them as it was in enabling her to assume the socially acceptable role of 
Kunta's wife. Her three husbands were Reinhard Beck, married 1511, Johannes Schwan, 1524, and Balthasar Beck, 1527. This final husband is of interest here because it was during their marriage that Ursula's text and those other texts of 1529-30 were published. There is no documentary proof that either Balthasar or Margarita were definitely Anabaptists, but he repeatedly faced this accusation and was not afraid to print radical materials. As already noted, the publication of this little book brought together two exceptional women who exercised considerable agency, even if they took recourse to anonymity for their protection. Nonetheless, as the story of this book shows, it was impossible to mitigate all of the dangers associated with publishing prophetic texts or to maintain anonymity in the face of intense scrutiny and suspicion. Indeed, it was not just at the time of publication that such texts provoked alarm and anger. In 1537, the Speyer City Council sent one of Ursula's visions, along with 13 other Anabaptist texts, to their counterparts in Strasbourg as a warning about the dangerous potential of such works and their writers. Given all of this, it is striking that in the face of these dangers, these women acted at all. It would, however, be a misrepresentation of the text and of its genesis to discuss only the women behind the prophecies. Of all the parties involved in its publication, it is Melchior Hoffmann who looms largest. The text opens with a rather proprietorial greeting, Gnad und den ewigen Frieden und das ewige Heil wünscht Melchior Hoffmann allen erserwählten gläubigen Liebhabern der göttlichen Wahrheit und Gerechtigkeit. So he's effectively um, blessing or sort of wishing very good things on all um, lovers of God and believers in God, as if he is um, someone that can be providing such a thing for them. As discussed earlier, the fact that the text was published under, au under the auspices of a man afforded it great authority. Moreover, by 1530, Hoffman had his own following as a preacher, thus it is significant that this particular man put his name to the text. His opening and closing comments convey a firm belief that Ursula's visions were genuine and held important messages for mankind. This conviction comes across most strongly in his afterword, where he commends Ursula as a true prophet and discusses the amount of prophesying. So he says that um, understanding or receiving messages from the Spirit is not something for everyone. Instead, this is a special office uh, that God gifts to people. And these gifts um, are spread out differently amongst different people. And just as there are different offices, in a physical, bodily sense, so uh, too there are different uh, spiritual offices that different people may be awarded. Additionally, when called before the Strasbourg magistrate, Hoffman testified that he believed the prophecies would come to pass exactly as Ursula had foretold. Ursula never seeks to explain the visions herself, but does on occasion request elucidation. Interestingly, in his afterword, Hoffman emphasizes her role as the recipient but not interpreter of the visions, saying, Wie dann vor Augen ist, dass diese obgemeldete Liebhaberin ein hoher Gab göttliches Geist hat, Gesicht göttlicher Offenbarung, aber nicht derselbigen Auslegung im Verstand, dann was der Geist ihr offenbart und lehrt und wird ein solches Führer einem anderen dargereicht. So in the second part there, he says she is given the visions, but actually not the ability to explain them herself. That is for someone else to do. And in doing this, he seems to imply that it is perhaps his role to bring to light the visions that remain opaque. Strikingly, though, he only wrote a brief, relatively brief fore and afterward, 
and he does not go as far as to comment on or explain individual visions, or even add marginalia. Thus, his claim to be an interpreter should perhaps be viewed figuratively, although he expresses it in the context of Ursula's text. seems he is talking about his broader role in stating that in contrast to Ursula, who was an instrument of God, his gift also encompassed exegesis. Some final thoughts on this text. This paper has aimed to take a deeper look at Ursula's text, analysing in turn each of the aspects proclaimed in its title in order to gain a clearer sense of the women behind the text. With figures such as Ursula and Margarita, where so much of their story remains unknown, or is pieced together based on male stories, there is always a danger of taking things too far and in effect trying to fill in the gaps. This discussion has sought to avoid this as far as possible by focusing on the little book itself as a route to then discover more of the two women. There seems little doubt that the publication of their prophecies brought together two exceptional women who exercised considerable agency even if they took recourse to anonymity as a means of protection. As Stana has noted, with the loss of the appreciation of spiritual experiences and thus of mystics and prophets, the Protestant laity, women in particular, lost a central means for teaching, preaching, and theological influence beyond the domestic sphere. In my view, awareness of this context only compounds Ursula's significance as a female prophet who actively embraced the power of the spirit. A woman who asked God for visions and their meanings, acknowledged her role, and ultimately acted on this by giving a voice to those visions.